Once again, as we begin our time, the study of the Word of God, I'll ask you to bow for a word of prayer. We ask for the Lord's attending to it. Father, once again, we bow before you, understanding our need, understanding our great dependence upon you for knowing what it is you are saying to us. We are so dependent upon your Spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds and to help us to take these things and apply them in practical ways in our lives. So help us think about that. Help us do that this morning as we revel in the wonder and majesty of who you are and your plan of salvation. So Lord, thank you for allowing us to be here this day. We do pray for those who aren't with us that they would be well, that they would be encouraged in their hearts as they are away. And Lord, bring us together again tonight to worship together and attend now to our time as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is a privilege to be together and to study the Bible together, so I'll ask you to open your Bibles with me for our study today. We are returning to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we are plotting our way through Paul's epistle to the Christians in Rome as he is explaining to them these grand truths that we have been learning over the last months. As we begin our time this morning, we need to be reminded that the beginning in verse 11, where we're going to begin our time this morning, we are now embarking upon what I have labeled a new section in this chapter. It actually goes all the way to the end, to verse 36 of this chapter, even though I just want us to begin to crack the surface, really, of our time this morning in verses 11 through 24. And as we have done in the past, I want to do again this morning by beginning with our time by reading this text for us. So follow along as I read verses 11 through 24 of Romans chapter 11. Paul says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Of course, speaking of the Jews. He says, may it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection be reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead. And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. 
Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? There's a lot there, of course, in those 13 verses, but I just want to begin our time just in the first few verses. And if you are here this morning as a believer in Jesus Christ, as many are, and you have you are a new believer, or maybe you have been saved for quite some time, then there is a subject within Christianity that you must think about. And that subject is the subject of Israel. Not oftentimes do we spend our time thinking about it. But we must as Christians. Specifically, what is God doing with Israel? What is God doing with Israel now? And what is God doing with Israel in the future? This is an inevitable question that you either will be challenged with or need to challenge yourself with in your own Christian thinking. If not for the simple reason that the Bible speaks so often about Israel and speaks about the promises given to Israel and what he has made to them by means of the covenants. If you've never thought about what God is doing with Israel, then... You just need to sit down with your Bible and start to read it. Read it more carefully. Read it more succinctly. Especially when you come to the Old Testament and pay careful attention to all of the promises that God has made to them. There are numerous, and yet very often today, as a Christian, you will go into a online bookstore. I was about to say into a Christian bookstore. There aren't mortar and brick Christian bookstores, it seems, anymore. At least not in this country. You'll go online, you'll pick up books on Nation of Israel or on somebody writing about the future of Israel, and you will pick up some very well-known theologians who will say, with a sense of personal authority, that God is done with Israel. That God is finished with them. Or, they will say that the church now is the new Israel. And it is partially my desire this morning that we not be confused as to God's dealing with Israel. I certainly do not want to embark upon some kind of historical theological discussion about why that may or may not be true. I simply just want to show us from Paul's words in Romans chapter 11 why that is not true and why we will in no way answer every question that you may have in your minds or questions that may be stirred up in your minds as to what we are talking about this morning. Suffice it to say that at the very least, I hope we all come away with an understanding 
that there is no way that God is finished with Israel in totality or in finality. There's no way that anyone who does just a a simple, cogent understanding and reading of Scripture can come away with that kind of reality and that from that understanding that when we leave here today, we'll leave with a greater thankfulness on our heart because God is not done with Israel. That is my hope this morning. That is the desire upon my heart as we embark upon this passage. Now, from our previous study of chapter 11, we should already understand that God is not done with Israel in totality. In totality. Why? Because the Apostle Paul has made that point very clear to us in the first 10 verses. There's no way that God is done with Israel in totality because Paul raises the hypothetical question just like he has done in the past in chapters 9 and 10 and he asks this question I say then God has not rejected his people has he it's a hypothetical question the only answer to that question in in the mind of Paul through what Paul has been saying and through the history of Israel is no way that's why he gives that strong negative may it never be why is that the case Paul why is it that you could say that God is not done with Israel in totality absolutely not well the answer that is given to us by Paul is very practical and it's very logical first he says it is because I'm a Jew I mean on the simplest of of answers and the simplest of reasons the reason Paul can say God is not done with Israel in totality is because Paul is part of Israel I'm a Jew, he says, verses 1. I am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. In other words, how can it be true that God is totally finished with Israel when I'm part of it and I'm still here and I'm saved? You see, it's very logical. It's very simple. It's very easy for us to understand Paul's thinking. If a piece of the whole has been preserved, then it is not accurate to say that the whole has been totally rejected. In other words, if some of the whole has been saved, then it cannot be totally finished, can it? That's Paul's argument. Pretty simple. You don't have to be some kind of highly educated at the highest levels of theological training to understand Paul's words. And Paul proves that simple reality by saying a second truth and that all of us should know this and all of us should, it should lead us back to the truth that God isn't done with Israel in totality. And that is because of the doctrine of the remnant. The doctrine of the remnant, which, by the way, is taught throughout the whole Old Testament. Just a side note here, by the way, for us modern day Christians. Would you read... The Old Testament, when you read your Bible, and especially the Old Testament as we do so often when we're with our children, please don't read it and share it as if it's only a bunch of historical stories to tell your kids because it's exciting how Joshua conquered the land. It's exciting how David kills Goliath. It's exciting how Daniel uh, is conquering in the lion's den and all of these kinds of things. Don't read them like it's a bunch of historical stories collected together like Aesop's fables. 
stories that <clears throat> we simply try sometimes to draw some moral argument about and teach that to our kids and say, this is how you should be because look at what the Bible says. Please don't do that with the Old Testament. We have in the Old Testament <clears throat> is so much beyond just stories. So much beyond that. What's in the Old Testament is true and lasting promises by the only creator God to a people, specifically the Jews, to a people by which God has placed the entire fulfillment of those promises. Okay? The Old Testament, God, the creator God, making promises to a specified people, i.e. the Jews, upon which the fulfillment of all of those promises are based upon his very character and his power to accomplish them. In other words, God has made promises based upon his word, upon which he has said, if I don't do these things, I'm not God anymore. And so what we read about and see happening throughout the Old Testament is God's redemptive plan being carried out through the Jewish people so that, listen, you and I, who are not Jews, that we might know God and know His plan for all people, specifically the Jews. So it's not just stories. Now remember, in Romans, Paul quotes extensively from the Old Testament. Particularly concerning God's dealing with Israel. In hopes of proving to the Jews, and to us who are not Jewish people, right? But we're believers in Jesus Christ. We're believers in the Jew, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And he's proving to them that God is not finished with them. And the doctrine of the remnant ought to give us a glimpse into that truth. And that's why Paul goes into that in verses 3 through 10. But, here's part of the difficulty that we face here in this chapter. Right? The Jews are having difficulty with the gospel. We read it this morning in 1 Corinthians. The gospel, the preaching of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. The Jews are having trouble with the gospel. They're having difficulty with Paul teaching that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone and not by works of the law. In fact, when you read in the book of Acts, even the saved Jews, even those who got saved under the preaching of the gospel, were having a tough time with the Gentiles coming to know Christ. You read it in Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem council. And they're wanting the Gentiles to, to come under the law. To come under these Jewish ritualistic law things in order to prove in some way that, they're, that God's really with them. And Paul says, look, we're not doing that. It's not happening. Peter even got mixed up in some of that when he was around his Jewish people. Which is why Paul says he rebuked Peter in Galatians. The Jews are having difficulty with the gospel. They're having difficulty with the fact that Paul is saying that for the Jew or any person to be saved, they must come the same way all people must come. You must come by faith alone. They're struggling with that. 
And so because they're having difficulty with that, then they were even saying, well, if that's true, Paul, then the natural and logical conclusion is that God is finished with us. If it's true that it comes by faith, God gave us the law. If it's true that it's by faith alone, then you must be saying, you must be implying in the gospel that Israel is done. It's finished. That God is done with us in totality. That God is done with us in finality. God is finished. And even the Gentiles. Even the Gentile believers. That Paul is addressing even here. As we see in verse 13, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Even the Gentiles are saying, you know, if Israel's going to be brought back, if they were, if they stumbled and through that we come to know Christ, and, but, but you're saying, Paul, that Israel's going to come back, does that mean then that God is going to reject us? Because they were His people. God, the Old Testament clearly says that, and then God isn't dealing with them and now he's brought us in and and so if he's going to bring them back what's that mean for us does that mean we're going to be tossed aside by god i mean just just look for a moment at verses 15 and following paul says if their rejection be reconciled to the world what will their acceptance be but life from the dead and paul goes on as i read this morning and then notice verse 25 For I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And thus, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Well, well, Paul, if that's going to happen, then what about us? And so this this confusion is happening, this confusion. Desire to understand, but they're but they're not grasping what's happening in the plan of God. Well, it doesn't just doesn't seem to make much sense. And so Paul is reminding the Jew how they haven't been rejected in totality by reminding us, the Gentile believers. Paul's reminding the Jew how they haven't been rejected in totality or in finality. How? By reminding us Gentile believers that while right now the mass of those people being saved by God right now, in this time, in this dispensation of God's redemptive plan, come from the Gentile world. Most of the people being saved today are Gentiles. But that doesn't mean in any way the total rejection of Israel by God. Because one day, God is going to begin to draw them back to Himself. And He's going to fulfill in totality all of the promises that He has made to them. Because they're based upon His very character. And part of our joy in all of that as Gentile believers is that we get to participate in that fulfillment. This is what Paul's trying to get us to understand. God isn't finished with Israel. And listen, you Gentile believers, you get to participate in what's going on. And so here's one of the truths that I want us here this morning to understand and truly thank God for. My desire is we walk out of this room and we think of God differently than maybe we thought about Him when we walked in and we're truly thankful for all things like He says. 
We need to thank God this morning. Because Paul is making that point here in verse 11. We who do not have Jewish blood pumping through our veins. We who do not have Jewish heritage in our minds. We who are Gentiles. We're not Jews. We're the ethne who is not Jews. And we need to thank God that He has not rejected Israel in totality or in finality. Why? Because it is through their sinful failure that you and I have come to know Christ. You realize that? You sit here this morning as a Gentile believer because the Jews rejected Christ. Let that sit on you for a minute. You're not a Jew. You have no Jewish heritage. You're not part of those whom throughout the years were part of the promises to Israel. And yet because of their sinful failure, you know Jesus Christ. Secondly, it's through your salvation that the Jews are going to be drawn back to Christ. Their sinful failure has brought the gospel to us and our salvation is what God is going to use to bring them to Christ. Notice what Paul says in verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall Did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make them jealous. So right out of the gate, right here, right out of the gate, God's not done with Israel in totality in verses 1 to 10. And now Paul is explaining the fact that God is not done with Israel in finality Because of this very truth. We are presented with the reality of the stumbling of Israel and not the falling of Israel. We're presented with the stumbling of Israel, but not the falling of Israel. And of course, this is part of the key to understanding this whole section. By stumbling, Paul means their current state of rejecting Christ. Their current state of rejecting Christ. A stumble is not a fall. A stumble is a trip. A stumble is a, is a missing to walk properly. A stumbling is a transgression as it is said here. Some of your Bibles don't have the word transgression there. The word is transgression. It, it means to sin. By their sinning. They have sought salvation by means of something other than faith alone. We're talking about the reality of the general idea of the Jews. There are a smattering of Jews that are saved today. But in mass, there isn't. Most salvations are Gentile salvations. This is, as we call it, the time of the Gentiles. In fact, Paul reiterates and even speaks to something of that issue in verse 25. He says, I want you to know this. Don't be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. When? Why? Until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Until God is done bringing in the chosen of the Gentiles. This is why Israel is rejecting. So that the Gentiles would be brought back in. Remember back in chapter 9. 
Paul said, Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not obtained to righteousness. Israel followed after the law of righteousness, but didn't obtain that righteousness. Why? Because they didn't seek it by faith, it says. They didn't seek it by faith, but rather by what? Works of the law. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Notice chapter 9, verse 33. I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. But they stumbled over that. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Verse 32 of chapter 9. They stumbled over Jesus Christ. They stumbled over salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the same thing that is said by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says it this way. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. You see, it's about faith, embracing Jesus Christ by faith, not by doing. Salvation isn't by doing. We've heard that over and over and over and over again through the Apostle Paul in Romans. Salvation cannot come by doing. Salvation is only by faith. It is by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. And He is a stumbling block to many. Not because he in himself inherently is a stumbling block, but because in God's wisdom and God's grace and God's mercy, he has seen fit to cause their eyes to be blinded so that we might hear the gospel. They stumbled. They tripped up. But that doesn't mean they're stumbling is such that it is irrecoverable. In other words, it's not a total fall. That's what Paul says here. They did not fall. It's not a total fall. It's not a total crash from which they are not able to be recovered. And so the point here is that there is a massive difference between stumbling and falling. There's a massive difference. When you think of Israel, there's a massive difference between them stumbling and them falling. And here, it is being asked in the form of a question with the idea of asking, is God completely finished with Israel? That's the idea. Can we say that God is completely finished? Because if, 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 if He is, then they fell and crashed irrecoverably. But the clear answer that Paul gives is no, may it never be. Or as we have understood it to be saying, don't even suggest it. It's impossible. It's impossible for God to be done with Israel. And we need to thank God that he's not done with Israel. It's impossible that he is and praise God that he isn't. So why then has this happened? That's the logical question in the minds of the Jews. That's the question going on in the minds of the Gentiles. And Paul is truly wanting us to understand this as Gentiles. Verse 13 clearly makes that point to us. I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Paul wants us to understand. And so 
to that question, Paul gives a couple of answers. Right? A a couple of answers, as I've said, that we ought to thank God for. Right? The Jews stumbling means salvation to us. That's the first thing we need to thank God for. The stumbling of the Jews. Thank God that he isn't finished with Israel. Thank God that that the Jews have stumbled. Thank God for that. Why? Because that stumbling has opened the door for the gospel to come to us. By their transgression, salvation came to the Gentiles. By their transgression, salvation came to the Gentiles. It would be a true statement to say, as I've already said, that the majority of believers today are non-Jewish believers. When you read throughout the Old Testament, you quickly realize something else was happening. That God is dealing with the Jew. In other words, in the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, there is nothing there primarily about the Gentiles in a primary sense. It is about the Jewish people. It is about their nation. It is about God's redemptive plan to the Jews. It is about His promises to them, fulfilling those promises or saying He's going to fulfill those promises. Except so much as the Gentiles might be thrown in every now and then, but only as they're interacting with Israel. In other words, no prominent place where there's this prominent idea of Gentiles and God dealing with Gentiles. It's only as they're interacting with Israel. And so since that's the case, then we can ask the question as Gentiles, how did you and I, who are non-Jews, how did you and I ever come to the place whereby we are blessed with the joy of salvation? We have to ask that question. If the Jews are God's people, God dealing with the Jews, and the Old Testament is all about that, then how in the world did you and I as non-Jews ever come to the place where we're blessed with salvation? See, I don't believe we ever really think about it like that. Especially here in the West, because we have grown up in a time and a place whereby all we have ever known is that there are Christians around us. We've ever known in this country, right? I mean, even people will say, I think wrongly, but that's a whole other point, a whole other message, a whole other day, uh, that this is a Christian nation, right? We have some Judeo-Christian basings and foundings from the people who founded the country. But the fact of the matter is, we, that's all we've ever known, is there are Christians around us. There are Christians in our place of living. There are Christians in our country. There, the, the possibility of the gospel coming to us or even being regularly spoken to us is all around us. There's somebody somewhere who you know as a Christian. There's somebody in your family, somebody in your friends, somebody, acquaintance you know. And there's a possibility that you could hear the gospel. But have you ever thought about why that is? Have you ever thought about why the gospel is all around you? Well, Paul tells us right here. The answer... To what seems to be such a simple question is that we have heard the gospel not because we've grown up in a godly nation, not because we are in a place where the church seems to thrive, unlike other countries, 
Not because we live in a country where our freedoms have afforded us great privilege. No, the answer is that we have the gospel coming to us because of the stumbling of the Jews concerning the gospel. In other words, the sinfulness against the gospel on the part of the Jews is part, let this, is part of the ultimate purpose of God to bring to us, you and I, the glorious message of salvation. Paul says it right here. By their transgression, by their sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Just put your name right there. Just, just, just put parentheses around Gentile, right underneath that, Terry or Joe or Randy or whoever. Just put your name there. By their transgression, salvation came to you. No other way. No other way. That's how it came. Does that shock you? I mean, you've read this passage, I'm sure, in your own Bible reading, your own time. You've read through this. You've gone through it. You went, well, Paul, that's, you know, I read chapter 9. I read chapter 10. Chapter 11 just kind of confuses me. I've read other books and other people say Israel's done. It, it just kind of confuses me. I don't know how to think about all this. But right here, right now, you're thinking about it. You're, you're, you're being forced to, to look at it a little differently. And you're saying, by the transgression of the Jews, salvation came to me. That should shock you. Does it cause you then in your shock, in your, wow, I've never seen that before, to be thankful for the Jewish people? To think about the Jewish people a little differently than maybe when you walked in the door and you hear the spewing on the news of all kinds of nonsense. Simply because you are now saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does it cause you to be thankful? Because there was a time when you were not a people of God. But now you are a people of God. Because the Jews rejected the gospel. Because Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. In other words, this thing has happened to the Jews. This rejection, this stumbling, this categorical in most ways stumbling of the Jews has happened as part of God's inscrutable purpose to bring the gospel to you and me I'm sorry but if I was planted at all I wouldn't have done it that way I wouldn't have done it that way you say well does the Bible truly reflect that does does the Bible actually reflect that premise Well, Isaiah prophesied about it. In fact, it was his ministry mandate to prophesy about it. When Isaiah was called to ministry by God himself in Isaiah chapter 6, listen to it. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Isaiah says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. This is Isaiah. Here I am, Lord, send me. And he said, okay, go and tell this people. Isaiah is a prophet to the Jews. Tell this people. Go and tell them the message. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. 
Keep on looking, but don't understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then I said, Isaiah says, then I said, Lord, how long? How long do I do that? How long do I tell them that? How long do I keep preaching to them and they keep rejecting the truth? How long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it. It will again be subject to burning like the terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And the holy seed is its stump. This was Isaiah's message to the Jews. Believe upon what God said. Righteousness comes by belief. But they reject, reject, reject. Isaiah, they're going to reject, they're going to reject, they're going to reject. Why? Because that's my plan. Ezekiel prophesied concerning the heart of God for them. For Israel, chapter 33. He says this, beginning in verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God pleading with Israel. Here's the gospel. Believe. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. Well, when you turn to the New Testament, in the beginnings of the spreading of the gospel go out from the day of Pentecost on, This is exactly what you see happening in the New Testament. In the Gospels, you remember, Jesus the Messiah comes to his own and they reject him and they kill him. God himself comes to the Jews. The old parable of the the landowner with the garden who who lets it out to people and he sends his servants and they, they abuse his servants. They kill his servants. He says, well, I'll send my son. Surely they won't kill my son. Surely they'll treat him right. And he sends his son and what do they say? Here comes the owner's son. Let's kill him and we'll have it our way. This is exactly what has happened. Jesus is killed just as Jesus said it would happen. And then you come to the book of Acts and in chapter 8 after the death of Stephen. In chapter 7 the gospel goes forth with the scattering of the Christians who are scattered because Paul is so vehement standing there as Saul at the death of Stephen. And you watch the progress of the church, the progress of the gospel spread in its in its viral way across the globe and across up to the north into the European sector and in chapter 13 we get a very important piece of information chapter 13 verses 42 through 48 Paul and Barnabas are on their missionary journey and it says beginning in verse 42 as Paul and Barnabas were going out the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath remember Paul's tradition was always to go into a town go into the synagogue and begin first speaking to the Jews And they were begging him, talk to us about this again on the next Sabbath. And when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes, who are the God-fearing proselytes? That's the Gentiles who, who were brought into Judaism as a proselyte. That's the only way the Gentiles had anything. 
They were nobodies. They were outside. The Jews were God's people. The proselytes, these God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who were speaking to them and urging them to continue in the grace of God. And then the next Sabbath day comes, verse 44, nearly the whole city is assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they're filled with jealousy and they begin contradicting the things spoken by Paul and they're blaspheming. That's what it says. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. And here's what he says. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. It's necessary that we bring the gospel to you first. Since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. There it is. Through their transgression. Paul says in Romans 11. The gospel... Salvation has come to the Gentiles. We're turning to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 47. For the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here it is. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believe see there you have the gospel coming to the Gentiles and election is right there in the middle of it all and then you go farther Acts chapter 18 verse 6 Acts chapter 22 beginning in verse 18 through 21 and I want to I want to take us personally over to Acts chapter 28 for a moment Go to Acts chapter 28. Just turn a few pages back in your Bible. You'll be there. Acts chapter 28. The Apostle Paul, of course, arrives in Rome. He's now the end of his ministry. On, going to be on trial. Knows he's probably going to face his death. And he's giving his account of what's happening before the magistrates. Why he's there. And beginning in verse 23, he says this. And when they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. So Paul was arguing to them from the Old Testament about Jesus. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken by, but others would not believe. And when they didn't agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and should, and I should heal them. So let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. There it is. There it is. So listen, beloved. 
It is the persistent rejection of the gospel by the Jews that opened the door for the apostle to bring the gospel to us. You and I sit here this morning as believers in Jesus Christ, obviously in the scope of God's redemptive plan and by his sovereign grace, we sit here saved because in his plan, the Jews rejected so that we would hear. And so in this world filled with so much Jewish hatred, so much anti-Semitic nonsense that's out there in the world today, we must love the Jew. Why? Because God has used their rejection to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to us. And in God's inscrutable wisdom, here's point two. In his inscrutable wisdom, God is using us to draw the Jews back. Notice what he says at the end of verse 11. In chapter 11. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make them jealous. In order to make them just... Oh, brothers and sisters, listen. Let us not get so high-minded about ourselves and about the salvation that we have been given. Because part of the present reason that God saved us is so that His chosen people, the Jews, would be made jealous by seeing the blessing of salvation in our life. I hope we are seeing the wonderful circular wisdom of God to save here. The rejection of the gospel by the Jews sends it to us, the Gentile, and the Jews, seeing the effects of the gospel on us, is provoked to jealousy by that reality, and they are brought to the place in their hearts to reconsider the gospel they once rejected. So, let's not think too lightly on this, because how we live as Christians, we are... Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. And therefore it ought to have an effect upon our life. How we live as Christians has been designed by God to have an effect upon others. That is a clear principle here in this text. We ought to have drawn that out to ourselves and said to ourselves, Wow, my salvation has an impact. Where the How I live, how I live for Christ as a Gentile has an impact. God has designed it that way. And by the way, jealousy here is the idea of emulation. Emulation. In other words, they want the blessing that you have. They want to be like you. And with that idea in our minds, we have to ask ourselves the question here this morning. And the question is this. Is our life worth emulating? Is our Christianity worth emulating? Do people see our lives and ever go, hmm, I sure would like to be like that. Is my Christian living such that it would cause others to ask that question? Does your Christianity cause others to be provoked to jealousy? We've all heard the old adage, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to find you guilty? 
you're on trial for being a Christian, is there enough evidence from your life to draw a guilty conviction? Here's how Peter said it to Gentile to Gentile. Here's how we're to respond to one another, Gentile to Gentile. 1 Peter 2, 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? So that in the things that they slander you as an evildoer, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You realize the day of visitation idea there is this idea that they're going to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and they're going to thank God that you didn't kowtow to their evilness. That you stood for Christ and they're going to go, thank God you did that because that's what I wanted. This is the idea that Paul's getting at. The Jews in God's grand plan of redemption are going to be drawn back to him because they see us. They see God working with us. How can that be? That's the question in their minds. How can that be? There is coming a day when the Jews are going to look at the blessing upon you and I in our life as believers. And they're going to say, I want to emulate that. I want that. And God's using that to open and crack the hardness of their heart of rejection to hear the gospel. That's God-ordained means for bringing them back. That's how God has designed it. So in both directions, we need to thank God for the Jews. Right? We need to thank God that God has used their rejection to bring the gospel to us. But we need to thank God that God is using us to reach out to the Jews. Our life needs to be emulating and we need to love the Jews. And we need to proclaim the gospel to the Jews. And we need to live the gospel before the Jews. Because the Jews have rejected at least as a whole the gospel that it was sent to us, a non-Jew. So that seeing the blessing upon us as a non-Jew, eventually they would desire the gospel. And so here's what Paul says in verses 12 to 14. Now just read this. If their transgression, their rejection of the gospel, be riches to, for the world. You say, well, what's the riches to the world? Well, the blessing, the fact that, that God is saving others and that there is a blessing upon the world simply because God has saved people. Imagine what the world would be. We'd be like just before the flood if there was no saved people. Every thought and intention of the heart would be wicked all the time in every single one of us. But the gospel came. That's a blessing to the world by the transgression of the Jews. And, and their failure, their, their failure to believe was riches to us who do believe. How much more is their fulfillment going to be? I mean, how much more blessing do you think it's going to be when the Jews get saved? Paul said, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, magnifying my apostleship to the Gentiles, my ministry to you. Why? Because I, I, I want to see every Gentile I know get saved because the more Gentiles get saved, the more jealous the Jews become. The more they want that, the more they want it. And maybe, maybe some of them are going to get saved, Paul says in verse 14. Maybe that's going to save some of them. See, Paul, 
Oh, man, he was like, okay, if the Jews are going to reject, then I'm going to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to you. And if that means I got to go to the Gentiles and share the gospel with the Gentiles and see every single Gentile I know get saved, then I want that to happen because that's only going to mean that you're going to see it more and more and more and more and more and want to come to Christ. That's how our mind should be. That should impel us to share the gospel. Because the more people that are saved, the more people see the blessing of God upon the lives of those who are saved, and the more they go, man, what is going on? So let me just close with this so we understand. Why has the Jew rejected the gospel? Are they rejected in finality? The answer is no. No, they're not rejected in finality. It's only a temporary rejection. They have not fallen. They've only stumbled. That happened in God's merciful wisdom so that you might hear the gospel. So it might come to you. And our embracing of the gospel is so that they would be made jealous of what God is doing with us. So that they might be brought back to Him and therefore at some point in the future, they will see their error. And all those whom God has chosen will believe the gospel that they have rejected. And God will receive all the glory because we'll say, we didn't do that. And the Jews can say, we didn't do that. Neither one of us wanted that. And God receives all the glory. No way is God finished with the Jews. And all of us can thank him for that. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we do bow once again before you and just, just revel in the wonder of your grace. How you have seen fit to develop your plan of redemption in such a way that does seem like foolishness to men. Such a waste of time in the logic and wisdom of men. And yet you have made such a way so that your plan would always be accomplished. Sin would never be an ultimate block to it. You always accomplish what you have set out to do. You have set out to save And you will accomplish that. You have promised and your promises are sure as who you are in your very nature. And so we can trust that. And when we believe upon you, we know that in Jesus Christ, we are secure as the very nature of who you are. And so we thank you for sending the gospel to us, for opening our eyes, for causing us to not reject to believe upon Jesus Christ, to have life in his name. May our life now as believers be lived in such a way with such a reflective glory of your very character that others look at us and go, man, that person just doesn't live like me. I want to know what that's all about. And let us open our mouths and proclaim the truth of the gospel, trusting that you will save those whom are yours. And we'll thank you for it all and the blessing of that all forevermore. So Lord, we 
offer these things up to you and ask for your blessing upon our lives for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.